Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Adam. How are you doing? Busy and stressed. <laughs> okay. Well, that's neither good nor wanted, but that's, well, that's your, the status of your day. On a more interesting note, today we have Peter Turchin, which is, I don't know, I was trying to find a segue. From something busy to do with, and stressed? With, yeah, and looking like our into nation. the future. <laughs> <laughs> Put it in the, in the books for like one of the worst segues ever. We should have a worst segue compilation <laughs> episode for subscribers. I feel, I feel every intro we compete with ourselves for the worst segues. <laughs> Absolutely. At least we didn't talk about the weather this time. Uh, is that a common for us? Uh, oddly enough, I, I, uh, I think I, I genuinely like talking about the weather. I don't know where where I'm getting well, it. Well, for me, but I, I know because it's my Britishism. Exactly. I do me. not have. I do not have that. I do have a penchant for certain types of weather and a, a deep hatred of others. <laughs> and sometimes I just need to have it heard. This has nothing to do with today. I guess it has something to do with it. Oh, here's a here's a segue because weather is chaotic. Predicting weather is ah, chaos. Forecasting weather is actually a, a very a similar to the way that Peter Turchin thinks about predicting the future. So tell us, Vanessa, who is <laughs> Peter Turchin? So Peter Turchin is a historian. He used to be a professor at University of Connecticut, but now he is the project leader at the Complexity Science Hub in Vienna. Used to be a scientist and then made the transition over to history, but brought with him the all the methodologies and perspectives of a scientist and thus took that lens to history. And I guess his point, one of his arguments is that there is something wanting in the way that history is studied where it's entirely examined as part of the humanities. It's not quite a science. It's not something that you can actually put into measurable compounds of data, infer a theory from it, and then extrapolate predictions. And yet, that's exactly what Peter does. He is the founder of a field called cleodynamics, which is attempting to bring the kind of more statistical scientific methods and analyses to history and to quantify the things that you may have thought weren't quantifiable, but in fact, there can be. And he has a whole team of researchers uh, who have been working with him to essentially go through this exercise of going through historical periods and manuscripts and excavating what could be metrics and compiling them into a great big database that he calls Seishat or Seishat. Um, and from that, he was able to make the predictions that we talk about in this in this conversation. I don't want to at least begin to talk about. Yes, yes, yes. And he, and he does make the caveat that they're still working on it and there's still room to go. But he the, the, the evidence so far is compelling enough that he feels uh, that he can start talking about what are the main drivers of social unrest in across and social collapse and social collapse across societies and then he kind of takes the lens and puts it on our current society and see and points out what which drivers are present here and guess what what a dumb things aren't looking great for us not swell not swell peter turchin actually came into public attention uh recently because in 2010 he was asked among other historians or people who generally dealt with the course of human events to 
to write a short essay for Nature magazine, looking at the next 10 years and estimating where things are going. Most of the other blurbs were more in the vein of Steven Pinker, full of optimism, thinking that despite still having some kinks to figure out, we are generally in a trajectory for human embitterment. And Turchin said, nah, I'm looking at my data here and my methodology and my methodology is saying things are shit. Mm -hmm. And to be precise, he said that things are going to come to a head in 2020. Wrote that in 2010. And then 10 years later. Lo and behold, things were shit. And so it was. (laughs) (laughs) The shit unfurled. So this is going to be the focus of his upcoming book which I think is still untitled. He was kind enough to share with us um, his his, uh, unpublished manuscript. Which was excellent. I'm very much looking forward to having Peter on again when the book is actually out and so people can go run out and buy it. And in fact, we will have him on again to discuss the future and his estimates in more depth. But this is, um, I guess, the first half of a would-be two-part conversation And this time we focused more on the question of whether a historian can and should deal with predictions and how to go about it. When we follow up, we'll probably get into more questions around the present moment and maybe even actually get a chance to talk to him about the way other historians think about this. Yes, open up the controversy. Mm. So we are on certain things. Yes. And if you are interested, we have, as we mentioned last week or last episode, I should say, we started posting a newsletter on our off weeks where we dive into thoughts left undeveloped after our recorded episode. Mm -hmm. So the last one uh, that we published was the kind of postscript of our conversation with Vashon Chakrabarty. And I pointed out, I, I kind of just added my perspective on some of the things that Vishon had said, uh, brought out some of the things that I didn't know before our conversation, which have, have stuck with me, um, and also just shared some really good articles that people should should read or or in podcasts that people should listen to if, they're, if they were interested in that conversation. Uh, which, by the way, we've gotten really good feedback on. I was really happy with that. Oh, um, yeah. I, I mean, it was, a, it was a great conversation. I and I loved it. And I guess I should get started on writing the uh, the Peter Turchin yes. postscript. So um, so tweet at Adam if something uh, stuck out at you from this conversation and you want Adam to to noodle on it for the newsletter. Can you, you might just see it there. And you should also share us with your friends and enemies. Mm. And if you want to support us, give us a five stars review on Apple Podcasts because that really helps. And um, yeah, sign up to uncertain.substack.com with that. Peter Turchin. Oh, actually, first of all, Peter, thank you for joining us. Thank you to have me. Okay, so my first question is, as somebody whose background is in history, and that's a big chunk of my passions, I remember that most of my education in history focused on trying to remove some of the temptations of turning the discipline into something utilitarian. Um, We developed a skepticism towards anybody who looked at history as something to divine the future from, whether that's the politician or the activist who says, oh, we need to learn from history and that's why you should trust my policies, or if it's the uh, grudging 
history student who who wants to feel that their field is a little more useful than just a theoretical inquiry into the human condition. In other words, the suspicion was that if somebody was trying to turn history into something a little more practical, they lacked the humility to appreciate history for what it was, for, for what it really was. But then you come in and say, no, 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 no. <laughs> You're not being humble because... According to you, when we relegate history to the soft sciences, we're being vain about humans as if our behavior can't be modeled within predictable patterns, as if there is something so unique about humanity and societies that it can't be understood through a prediction-yielding science. So make your case. Why were we wrong? Well, I'm not claiming that you are wrong. And certainly, I'm not claiming the historians are wrong, but but um, let's step back. So I'm not actually a big um, proponent of using history as utility, right? So what I am I'm a scientist. So a scientist aims to understand. So why did things happen the way they did? In fact, historians. Uh, when they write narratives, they don't just tell you what happened. They always have some ideas of why people behaved in that way. Why did revolutions happen? Why did um, some country won in the war with another one? So they, there is always uh, explanation is always part of it. Without it, the narrative becomes um, really boring. And even then, uh, you cannot really in a book, even in a book, you cannot say everything about, let's say, 16th century France. You have to be selective. So when you start selecting things, that means that there is some kind of a theory underlying uh, underlying it. So what I claim is that uh, everybody has theories about history, about why things happened the way they did. All right, but the problem until recently has been that you could propound pretty much any theory, right? And then you uh, and then many people would uh, support their theories with some cherry-picked examples, and then uh, some uh, pundits would say that you know we have to do this or that, our country has to do this or that because you know remember 1939 or remember whatever. So uh, so history is used uh, in that way. So all that uh, cryodynamics actually says is that's let's do it in a the right way, the proper way, and that means that uh, let's use it, uh, let's use uh, sci- the scientific method, right? So in history, you have ab- abundance of explanations. Uh, one German historian counted the number of explanations for why the Roman Empire collapsed. And he had more than 200, 240 or so. Right. So the problem is that explanations or theories, hypotheses multiply, but that's uh, only part of science. The uh, very important part of science is uh, clashing the different hypotheses against each other using the data so that you can find out which hypotheses actually are better and which are worse. Can you describe what you mean by that? What, what is the clashing process like? 
Yeah, and that's basically the, the scientific process. So let's uh, talk about the question of why empires collapse. Let's not talk about just Roman Empire. It's a single example. Let's talk about why do uh, empires uh, experience difficulties and then fragment, uh, collapse, break down. Very whatever. relevant question to today. Yeah. Yes, yes, it's quite. It's a question which is which should be on our minds in these yeah. days of our own age of discord. We'll talk about that. Uh, later, right. So there, there is a number of different theories that um, explain why empires collapse, and these theories uh, use different variables to predict. So, so Joseph Tainter, for example, says that empires collapse, or whole civilizations collapse, under the weight of complexity. All right. Other people suggest other variables. So, just I, I, I always love this phrase. But can you just explain what does it mean collapse under the weight of complexity? Oh, um, so uh, I, I, I'm not the best person to explain uh, this uh, complexity overhang theory. But according to Joseph Tainter, societies accumulate complexity, social complexity, many different types of. Um, uh, uh, institutions, um, uh, different types of uh, uh, role, social roles, um, and then uh, somehow he does. He never explains it. Somehow, uh, under the weight of all that unnecessary complexity, the societies collapse. I'm, I'm, as I said, I'm the, not the best person to explain this theory because I don't believe it. No, but right, right, right. But it's interesting the because there is an intuition that that at least rings through when you look at the United States when you can see the difference between a country that is limber and adaptable and something one that is tied into the um, a lot of arcana of institutions and commitments that it has to follow, and you can see when it's more lithe, it can change and evolve and resolve its own crises. And when it's not, it finds itself completely incapable of stopping a train racing towards it. So if the argument on complexity is wrong, at least it's specious with some ring of truth. Okay, so this is great. So you have a theory that some people are willing to support. So how do we <laughs> test this theory against uh, its, um, uh, its rival uh, hypothesis? Okay, well, we go ahead and we do quantification. So what does it mean to be overly complex? We start, for example, we uh, uh, quantify how many different institutions are, have been accumulated in the United States over the past century or so, or 50 years, whatever. All right. And then we go to other societies. I guess it also requires us to define institutions. That's right. So we, we, uh, uh, this is something that we have done, for example, in the a uh, project uh, which is called SESHAT, the Global History Data Bank, we have quantified a number of governance institutions. All right. So, for example, is there a deliberative council of some kind, or it could be a parliament? And uh, are, what, uh, what are the rules of succession uh, of the chief executive, and so on and so forth? Uh, is there a separation of powers? So there is, uh, in fact, um, there are some standard uh, standard political science databases that go ahead and um, uh, quantify, list basically, does this society have this or that institution? So um, we go ahead and quantify it. And so according to the complexity overhang theory, as the number of uh, such institutions increases beyond certain point, we should expect uh, the collapse. All right, and there are alternative theories that say, for example, the theory that we have tested and the one I believe in, 
It, uh, it invokes uh, the process called elite overproduction. It basically says when there are too many elite aspirants vying for a limited number of positions, then that is one of the, it's not the only, but that's one of the primary drivers for instability. So we go about and we actually quantify how many people are getting advanced degrees, how, what proportion of them actually gets the job, how many wealthy people are competing for offices, and, uh, and what uh, a proportion of them are frustrated and then maybe becomes, turns into counter-elites, that is, uh, uh, organizers who are challenging the status quo. All right, so you can see there are two theories. Each of them relies on a different uh, explanatory variable or variables, typically, because theories often invoke uh, multiple causes. And so now we go to the historical record, and we essentially gather information on both the predictors, right, uh, as in, uh, invoked by different theories, and we also quantify what do we what do we mean by collapse. So I actually don't like collapse because it's uh, it's uh, different people understand different things. So we call it social political mm-hmm. stability, and there are ways to quantify that. And so then, right, uh, but a collapse could be like a certain extreme, but there exactly. could be instability that is. Perf- perf- before collapse or even, yeah. But if you actually can give a second to describing how we quantify instability. Yes. So we uh, quantify instability. First of all, instability, uh, this is collective violence that is located um, between individual violence, such as crime, and between state violence, which is the uh, external warfare. So we're talking about collective violence within states. So this collective violence takes a variety of forms, but usually we use any form that results in people getting killed. So, for example, a uh, violent urban riot in which uh, 10 people or however many people get killed, that's one uh, kind of uh, political instability. Uh, Political terrorism. And then, of course, it all escalates until we get to full-blown civil war or a revolution that ends up uh, executing thousands of people, as it happened in France at the end of the 18th century and so on. So essentially, we count the number of such instability events, and we also count their, and we also measure their severity by how many people are killed. All right? And so that is our response variable, so to speak. Where does state violence against the public fall? Is this part of social instability? Absolutely. So this is, uh, so we have uh, within states, we have some collective actors. One of them is actually the ruling elites, the ruling class, if you will. So they are the ones who control the uh, coercive apparatus. And so when they use coercive apparatus, for example, to to kill people in a uh, anti-government demonstration, that certainly counts. But also when anti-government demonstration gets out of hand and people start killing policemen, that also counts. So uh, the different um, within the different act, collective actors within states, when they involve in violent conflict with each other, that's how we define uh, political instability. So now that we're quantifying this, is it is it a question of quantifying frequency? Is it uh, quantifying the size of incidents? How many people die collectively? 
ratio to population size? Both, actually. So, uh, for example, um, I have uh, built a United States political violence database, and it lists both the different incidents, riots, um, um, uh, terrorism, lynching. Lynching is another kind of uh, collective violence. Um, and also, it, it uh, when we have data, or at least estimates, how many people are killed. It could be uh, between, say, let's say 15 and 25 people uh, who got killed in this particular uh, incident. So uh, the question, how do you deal with both uh, aspects of instability, the number of incidents or the number of people killed, comes at the analysis stage. Mm. right? And so different analysts can actually use this data in different ways, that, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Okay, so maybe let's get back to, so now you have these two competing hypotheses, you have different variables that you're potentially going to pull from to prove these hypotheses. What does the process of comparison look like? So the process of comparison is now we have a dynamical model, which uh, tries to predict what is going to, how the instability is going to wax and wane. And this uh, this uh, variable, response variable, instability, is uh, then uh, can be driven by different factors and different theories propose different factors. And so, essentially, it is a kind of regression. It's, it's called dynamical regression because we are dealing with quantities that change with time. But we are trying to find out which of the uh, uh, of the proposed drivers actually do the best job predicting whether uh, instability and how much it increases and decreases. So the logic here is that we are using what's known as scientific prediction. We are not, uh, we are actually retrodicting because, you know, we are applying it to the past instances of outbreaks of uh, revolutions, civil wars, and so on and so forth. But we are judging theories on their ability to predict the next time step. Mm-hmm. Right, and so you choose that theory, which uh, or combination of factors that give you the best uh, predictability. What if the two hypotheses are are not really on the same playing field in terms of how much reliable data they're they're leading upon? Like, what if we just happen to have a lot more data points? Uh, for one hypothesis than we do for another. If we had more data points, perhaps that other hypothesis would would seem stronger because we'd have more evidence accumulating towards it. That's, this is a great question. So um, different uh, theories may propose variables which are harder or easier to quantify. And therefore, we, so what we do uh, is we do the best job we can for each theory, but then we acknowledge that for this theory, our data are not as accurate, not as uh, uh, maybe there are too many missing values, for example, or there are some other problems. All right, mm-hmm. then um, we say, so our tentative conclusion is that one theory explains better uh, or predicts better. And that may be because it is actually getting at the right drivers or because it is, uh, its data are much better. But in science, mm-hmm. any conclusions are tentative and liable to be revised. So mm-hmm. what you have done, even though it's an imperfect, you have not done maybe a very fair test of those two theories, right? But we have, we have still uh, uh, made a step forward in, uh, uh, in actually calling the attention 
to this problem. So now uh, the theory, which was not as well quantified, now that su suggests a great focus for historians, archaeologists, or other scholars of the past to put their efforts into quantifying that particular variable. Mm. Are, are there particular gaps that you're, by accumulating the data that you have to uh, for Seishat to, to make predictions that you've realized are kind of most urgent for historians to address? Exactly. So this is one of the, uh, this is one of the, uh, products of this whole uh, enterprise. It's not just testing theories, it's also locating gaps. So one gap in particular, it turns out that so far all, all our data uh, collection in Seshat has focused on polities, which are like states, uh, empires, uh, chiefdoms, or even uh, independent villages. Right, but polities don't exist in isolation. They interact and so we found, for example, uh, that uh, in one analysis, that location and um, in the network of the trading network seems to be very important. And we have written several proposals trying to persuade agencies to give us money to actually uh, collect data on trading networks. So far, we've been unsuccessful. So this is a big gap and that needs to be filled. So... Just to mm. come back to your question, uh, uh, identifying gaps is one of the valuable uh, products uh, from this whole enterprise. Mm -hmm. I guess we should probably get into our our current moment. I mean, we could we, I could ask you like three thousand more questions on like just the methodology, but we do want to make sure we yeah. we get to today. Oh wait a second, wait, uh, Adam. Uh, may I just I want to add something actually to this conversation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Uh, okay. So you've been talking about uh, di uh, different types of prediction, right? So mm -hmm. scientific prediction is not really about the future; it's about testing theories against each other, right? Mm -hmm. There is then there is uh, some kind of predictions which are bad predictions. I don't in uh, don't get involved in them. I call them prophecies. Prophecies mm. uh, is something that a doom is coming, you know, we don't know. The, the, the prophet doesn't explain why. There is complete black box, right? Uh, and essentially, it's useless because uh, the prophet doesn't even tell you how do we, uh, how do we avoid the doom, right? So the useful uh, prediction about the future is actually uh, forecasting, and you should use it. You should use it like like in weather forecasting, because you cannot pre predict exactly what's going to happen, even if your theory is very correct. As you cannot predict weather, we perfectly well understand why hurricanes happen, but predicting them is a uh, is very hard. So you, ha you have to use statistical approaches to do that. And then um, we also can use this, first of all, uh, to tell us what uh, our theory, the best theory you have, tells us about the future. But more importantly, we can now use the model that we have to generate this prediction to investigate what we can do to avoid the mm -hmm. uh, bad futures. So, for example, for hurricanes, we actually know perfectly well we have to cool the planet a little bit if we, if we want to avoid those uh, traumatic um, hurricanes. And the same thing, you know, we have to lower some social pressure or temperature in order to avoid the coming civil war. So that is, uh, this type of uh, multi-path forecasting is uh, an extremely useful tool, which we don't have now, but I completely believe that as our science gets better, 
we will be able to do that, and the publics, both the public and the policy makers, would be able to use such tools to discuss what should be done to avoid the worst outcomes. I, so I'm putting a pin into something that I hope we'll remember, and that's the question of, in an ideal world, how... <laughs> Well, I guess if it's an ideal world, but in, in a world where we do have these tools and the science is more developed, getting opt-in from leaders in the current state of affairs to actually pay attention to it, or even if they pay attention to it, to apply it, to me is a whole other um, problem and requires a different approach to incentives. So I want to get there, but before that, and hopefully we'll we'll have time and we'll remember... How do you, how do you see the current, and, and, and again, I'm, 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 I, I hope we get to have another conversation because I have so many more methodological questions that I'd love to drill into, but, but let's get into what you um, wrote about or hinted at, intimated in 2010 and what you're now publishing your uh, uh, upcoming book about, which is basically using your models, using your theory to look at present day American empire. Give me a bit more of a question to sink my teeth into. <laughs> How fucked are we? <laughs> yes. No, no, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you something more if you want, because I know you don't want to talk about doom or not doom, but okay, right. you're, you're saying we're, we're trying to avoid um, doomsday prophecies, but you were, um, you know, famously the 2010 Nature article in a moment where a lot of, of authors and people like, were, that were trying to have future-looking estimates were more optimistic feeling that there is a, a revivification of American promise as it was recovering from recession. And you looked at existing structures and you said, no, there is this thing that you're all ignoring. And that's the fact that we have way too many elites, which is something that um, you know, the first time I heard the phrase elite overproduction, I didn't need any explanation. I knew exactly what you're talking about. You were talking about people who are developing resentment because their degrees in esoteric fields don't lead anywhere because they have a dissonance between the idea of themselves, of wh where they should be in, in the social structure compared to how much money they're making and how much social influence they actually are able to garner. And the jobs they can get. And the jobs they can get. It's rather than jobs, it's prestige, it's influence, it's power, status. All these things are lacking and you have more and more people developing a resentment with enough power to create instability. You know, it reminds me of the narrative scheme in 1984 where you have three social uh, strata. At the bottom, you have the proletariat. They mm -hmm. don't get to change anything in their lives. But then you have the middle class and the top class. And the middle class always tries to take over. It's always a tension between the frustrated upstarts that try to climb and claw away their position from the current reigning elite. So revolutions are just a struggle between ruling classes. All that, I think all our listeners can get intuitively. But what are you seeing in terms of, um, first of all, convince me that this is not just um, something that is, you know, uh, as specious as the idea of overcomplexity, like because both of them sound right, but convince me that this is the case, and then tell me what you think is some of the likely possibilities that are going to happen, and what would require what what needs to happen in order to get to each future. Whew. 
Hopefully that's enough to sink your teeth in. Yeah, <laughs> yes, certainly. I, uh, I mapped out uh, <laughs> a long uh, answer to uh, your uh, prompting question. question yeah. uh, so <laughs> let me just first say that in terms of the complexity overhang, I am a little bit running ahead of the train here because we are testing these theories uh, with data that we have already collected, but we are not yet, uh, we have not done all the analysis. But uh, uh, it is very clear that we will be rejecting this uh, theory. All right, now let's go back to 2010. So 2010 situation was actually very interesting. This was the time of a, quite a lot of optimism. So you may remember the book by Steven Pinker, all right, so uh, about why violence, you know, uh, disappeared, which was published, I think, 2009 or something like that. Max Roser at uh, Oxford has been um, publishing all those uh, positive uh, data showing how life is getting better for more and more people. And so, of course, when um, I issued this forecast, and remember this forecast, it was actually a scientific prediction. I was not, uh, I didn't, didn't necessarily believe it myself, right? Uh, oh, I was going to ask you that. How certain were you when you were making this prediction? I, I, I put it forth as explicitly to test the theory. So the theory says that this is what's coming. So let's, uh, let's wait 10 years and find out whether the theory is uh, correct. And so the, theory, the alternative theories would be the theories that, uh, that uh, such as uh, uh, Pinker's uh, theory that um, the, the degree of violence keeps decreasing, and so we should not have those uh, types of things. All right. So, uh, uh, so of course, uh, this uh, prediction was uh, met with quite a lot of uh, disbelief. But that was fine. Um, so now, uh, why did I actually make this prediction? Uh, my personal uh, motive was kind of uh, interesting because I've been studying already for about 10 years uh, past societies, and I did not really want to get into the current politics because they're messy, you know, uh, and you, you, you can get hurt and so on and so forth. Um, but every time I gave a talk about, you know, the English Civil War, you know, the uh, revolutions in uh, different parts of the world, um, and uh, people have explained the dynamics, how the drivers for stability, how social pressures increase and cause the social breakdown. And at the end of the talk, people always ask me, so where are we? And I would tell them, I don't know, because um, to do this, I have to collect tons of data and uh, put them into a computational model and run it forward to see. But people kept asking me. So around 2006 or seven, I decided to go ahead and, and see what is happening to, with the society in which I live, the United States. And um, when I, uh, about uh, several months later, I was appalled because I didn't realize how bad things were, essentially. <laughs> so we were on this uh, route uh, since late 1970s. Uh, the immiseration has been proceeding, illiterate production has been uh, and uh, conflict proceeding. The state was getting weaker, especially its uh, um, legitimacy uh, measures. And all was pointing to, uh, uh, it was, these were all the early warning signs of a trouble to come. All right, and so uh, in the previous studies, at that point, we had about 
15 or so well-worked examples. Uh, uh, and uh, Just before you get to the examples, just to clarify those three factors that you uh, listed out. So elite overproduction, we said intuitively we understand that. Immiseration, you mean of wages, of um, personal prosperity? No, more than that. So immiseration has many aspects. Its economic uh, aspect is uh, stagnating or even um, declining wages in real terms, but it also has a biological and well, a biological health component and a social component. And for many societies, actually, a biological uh, component is a better way of mm. uh, measuring immigration. So, for example, we have uh, good data on people heights. So the average stature of a population, uh, you can get it from, if you have lots enough skeletons, for example, you can get it for pretty far back uh, periods in time. So declining um, average stature is a very good indicator of declining, um, you know, uh, uh, well-being, essentially. All right. Nutritional well-being. Nutritional well-being, but also it's really a bit more complicated than that. So, but uh, essentially, it's uh, uh, declining health of the population, which results not just from nutrition, but it could result from too much from over, overwork or from moving to very unhealthy locations uh, such as cities and so on. But all of those feed into immiseration. And also, I, I suppose, I suppose, some degree of of just emotional lack of well being, depression, and things like that could also affect metabolism. Exactly, exactly. So that's uh, social and psychological well being. Uh, it turns mm-hmm. out that uh, just simply asking people uh, how many days last month you have been depressed, or you know, so on, is quite, actually quite good uh, um, quantitative indicator, especially once you average it over um, a number of people. And then, of course, after I published my um, prediction, the book on death of despair came out. That uh, shows, basically, it is both psychological and biological. People are uh, committing suicide more, people are dying from overdoses and from uh, alcoholism and so on and so forth. So that is clearly a much better indicator than real wages uh, about uh, about immiseration. And the last one was... Trust. The, rest, the last one is state, weak, state weakness, which we tend to look at two dimensions of it. First of all, it's the fiscal health, so which we can measure by how much of a state uh, deficit, uh, a state budget uh, deficit, and also how much accumulated state, um, you know, uh, um, uh, debt. Uh, is but and the second one, which is very important, is the legitimacy of state institutions. All right. So in uh, in the modern world, we uh, we have polls, sociological polls that can tell us about these types of things. In pre-modern world, we have to use some praxis uh, for that. But so those three are the main the main uh, drivers of um, of of looming instability. And may I ask a question? Because the way that Adam phrased elite overproduction is like, well, duh, obviously. But I, I didn't have that immediate reaction to to the term elite overproduction. I, I, I absolutely see what he's saying in terms of I recognize the phenomenon that you're describing. What I don't necessarily intuitively recognize is 
why it's a big deal? Like, why does it rise to the level of being one of the three primary factors? And I think part of the reason why I'm not necessarily sold on that is because I don't I don't necessarily understand who you're referring to as the elites. Is it me and creative class or is it the real like CEOs making billions? Like, who is the elite overproduction that we're talking about and why do you think it's... And why can't, I guess it could be both. And why is it such an important factor? Okay, sure. This is a great question. So let me uh, address it in several, in, um, in, in uh, stages. So first of all, um, how do we know that elite overproduction is actually the most important factor? That comes from historical analysis. At this point, we have uh, several dozen cases where we studied. And it turns out that elite overproduction is ubiquitous feature of all societies that go into this crisis. And the the worse it is, the worse the outcome. So this Mm. is the empirical part. So now let's talk. Mm. Yeah. So now let's talk about. Oh, I was just going to ask, is there a specific society that comes to mind when you think of like the, 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 the true example of when elite overproduction went really amok? Sure. So um, let's look at the medieval France or England, very similar. So Mm. we are talking about the 14th uh, century uh, France, let's say, that uh, the number of nobles, the elites there were uh, the military and administrative class, the nobility. And we now, because they were legally distinct from uh, the rest of the population, uh, we can actually, uh, it's easy to define who they are. And because the crown has counted them periodically, we can actually find out how many there were. And so what happened was that uh, that the whole society got top-heavy, essentially, because uh, by, from 1300s, the, the population of France started to shrink slightly at first because of the famines. There was a terrible famine in 1315 through 17, uh, but the elite numbers continued to uh, increase. And so there were more and more nobles per peasant, so to speak. And of course, at, uh, uh, and then 1348 come, came and another chunk of the peasant population was removed and the whole system fell apart because the uh, nobles did not have their feeding base, so to speak, uh, was greatly diminished. Their numbers were huge. And so they started eating each other. And so the Hundred Years' War, which is usually thought as the series of wars between England and France, is actually in the... Um, uh, in the name of the French historian uh, Brodel, it's a hundred years of hostility. It was really internal warfare in which in English uh, basically meddled. And it was driven by too many numbers of impoverished nobles. All right? So that's a historical example. Now let's talk about the United States today, unless uh, Adam has another question. No, I was just going to say that much of the violence that we were seeing coming from the left during the summer of 2020 things that are still ongoing unfolding in um in places like portland and if you should listen to our conversation with nancy rommelman but a lot of that spillover was the result of an a frustrated elite that felt that they're not in their rightful place right yeah so, uh, so uh, okay, we'll get to that, but let's first define who we mean by elites, and let's use the United States. That's a society that I know from inside, uh, and so um, and I have studied it uh, quantitatively. So, right, um, elites are defined simply in sociology as uh, people 
who wield a lot of power in, you know, who, 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 who wield a lot of power. Now, of course, uh, there is, uh, it's not a sharp thing. It's not like uh, medieval France where uh, nobles and clergy were the elites uh, and uh, the, third, the third estate were the commoners, right? In the United States, we have to uh, use uh, some other ways to uh, estimate who has power and who doesn't. So um, what is social power? It's the ability to influence people's behavior. All right. And there are uh, four sources of social power. That's what sociologists have uh, generally agree upon. First of all, it's coercion. I can make you, uh, threaten you to to do what I want. I can, uh, second is economics. I can pay you to do what I want. The third one is administrative because I am the boss. Uh, I can actually tell you what to do. And typically people will follow bosses' um, um, uh, instructions. And the fourth one is ideological. I can persuade you to do what uh, I want you to do. So each of these sources of power has their own uh, power holders, all right? And each society tends to have one or two in which uh, in which the elites uh, specialize, so, so to speak, even though they try, of course, uh, the governing elites, the ruling class, um, uh, always tries to control all the sources of power. So in the United States, the most obvious uh, way to look at elites is to look at wealth, not income, but accumulated wealth, all right? And so uh, we have great data on, uh, on the distribution of wealth. And so people who have a huge amount of uh, wealth, they tend to have a lot of power. Not only because they can, uh, you know, they uh, often t- 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 happen to be owners of big uh, income-producing corporations, and so they can order thousands of borders around, but also because they all, uh, they tend to own the newspapers and other uh, mass media. So think about Washington Post, for example, and that's how they control the um, the. Um, ideological power, and also they have a lot of control over the administrative uh, power because they, first of all, they can run for office themselves or or they can uh, support some candidates uh, or they can give campaign contributions. So wealth um, distribution is the obvious place to start when you're thinking thinking about the uh, elites. But but when you uh, start analyzing actually um, who uh, who rules? You find that uh, wealth holders uh, they have a huge amount of influence, but they really govern in a coalition with administrative elites uh, and also the political class. Basically, there is a lot of overlap, of course, but uh, politicians also have a lot of influence. All right. So in order to become, so there are two types of elites. One of them is. Um, is wealth holders. The other one is how do you get into power? How do you get, become a top bureaucrat or how do you get elected? The best way to do it is to get uh, a law degree or some other degree. So it's credential holders. So credential holders and uh, wealth holders, they are the ones who tend to constitute the elites. And they thoroughly controlled in the United States, both the military elites like police and uh, army and uh, ideological elites. Okay. So um, now that's uh, that's the established elites, uh, people who are in power. The next uh, step in our analysis is to look at, so so far we looked at the structure, right? Now let's look at dynamics. What happens? How do elites get renovated? 
and uh, new people come in. So that happens because we have elite aspirants. Some elite aspirants are uh, automatically uh, become elites because by inheriting, for example, uh, wealth. Uh, but uh, most uh, elites uh, who get into the established elites, they either make um, their wealth, like you know, think about uh, you know uh, new billionaires, uh, or they get a, uh, the right credentials and then they work their way up through the administrative ladders or through the political uh, thing. And so there's always more elite aspirants. Uh, there are more uh, than there are elite positions. Positions. There are many more uh, aspirants for uh, to, to be one of the uh, CEOs of uh, Fortune 500 than the, there are only 500 uh, such positions. Mm-hmm. And there are always more uh, uh, political uh, aspirants to become president or a senator because that's also fixed. So, um, so what happens is that when society, society always overproduces elites, and that's uh, healthy as long as it doesn't get too much out of hand, because you obviously want uh, better people, better, more, um, you know, smarter, qualified, harder, qualified, qualified, quote harder, unquote, qualified. Yes, uh, more intelligent, harder working, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to uh, to uh, uh, to to win at the expense of uh, less uh, qualified, right? Okay, Adam? No, j- just adding the word qualified and, and aspirational. Like you want people who want to do the hard work. Obviously, they do it because they have the carrot dangling in front of Precisely. them. Precisely, All right, so, um, so if society starts producing more elite aspirants, all right, that, uh, uh, that uh, can be a huge source of uh, uh, problems because uh, as let's just let's just say that there are 100 positions, you know, it could be senators or whatever, and uh, so if you have uh, 150 aspirants, 50, uh, so one third of them gets frustrated. But if we have uh, we, we double that, there are 300 applicants. Now two thirds get uh, frustrated, and so uh, there is some kind of a nonlinear uh, blow-up effect. The more elites you have, the higher is the proportion who get. Uh, frustrated, all right, and so those of those, not everybody is going to become a revolutionary or anything, but uh, some proportion will. Is is the change in proportion because the more you see other people being frustrated, the more you already pre like people preempt their frustration with more frustration. Why why is this uh, compounding effect? Well, just in my numerical example, you had uh, when you had 150 uh, aspirants, 50 are frustrated. But you double that, you get 300, right? Now 200 are frustrated. Somehow we double the elites, but you, co- but, but you oh, quadruple. Oh, so it's a Malthusian equation where the, just the position don't expand exponentially like the elites do. So it's sort of super Malthusian even. <laughs> because, okay. yeah. So, um, so you, you double the number of elite aspirants, but you quadrupled uh, the number of frustrated aspirants. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, and so what happens when you quadruple the number of aspirants? You know, it just gets, it blows out. All right. And so um, some of those people, not everybody, they're going to turn into counter elites. So those are the people who, they're very smart, organized, um, uh, they are uh, motivated, uh, and uh, they basically start organizing the others to overthrow the unjust social order that results in so many people of people like them 
and being frustrated uh, from you know satisfying their life goals. Now, if you add immiseration to this mix, now you have a really, really bad situation because now you've got. So, uh, why are it important? And let me uh, go back to Vanessa's question. Because historically, peasant rebellions have uh, had very little chances of succeeding. Because uh, humans succeed by organizing. If you, uh, you need organizers, and who are the organizers? They are basically elites. They could be counter-elites. They don't have power now, but they wield power over the, uh, some kind of social movement or something like that. So that's uh, why uh, you really, uh, for a successful rebellion, you need uh, counter-elites. Okay, so we have established that elite overproduction is a problem. <laughs> <laughs> so where are we today in the United States? We have. Are you seeing all uh, in 2010? You were seeing the indicators for, I assume, immiseration and elite overproduction and decreasing trust. Uh, has that c- trend continued? And how do we pull the brakes, if if at all, if possible? Yes, and that was it was basically like being on a uh, slowly unfolding train wreck. You know, I'm sitting mm. in the train and I see, uh, you know, uh, the wreck coming up uh, for 10 years, basically. Uh, every couple of years, I would look at the data and say, oh, my God, we are, and you think trains are get, actually getting worse and worse. Yeah. And I feel one of the things you wrote in your in your book, too, was that, um, that incredulity is one of the <laughs> the commonalities of all people in pre-crisis eras. So I'm sure you started off a little incredulous and everyone around you is incredulous. And at the same time, you're seeing the data conflicting with this like exactly. natural yeah. inclination to incredulity. Yeah. So um, if maybe five years by 2015 or 16, it was clear to me that things were um, uh, not only developing in the same direction, but the things were blowing up. Well, by 2016, uh, it was obvious to me because of the elections. So I published my book, Ages of Discord, just two months before the November elections. All right. And then uh, what followed after, and of course, uh, things uh, continued to escalate. So uh, January of tw- uh, 2020, I guess. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, was another um, huge call uh, for um, taking uh, note of these uh, developments and so on and so forth. January 2021, yeah. Yes, 2021, thank you. Yeah. So so now, um, the uh, first of all, we're coming to a midterm election, which already uh, uh, members from uh, party, parties uh, are saying that they are not going to accept if they lose and of course, what's going to happen in 2024 is um, uh, it could be a major rupture at that point. Ooh, so one of the things that I understood from from reading your book is that it is a collapse is not inevitable. There are ways to subvert collapse. And in fact, the United States has a history of doing that in the kind of progressive era around like New Deal era, when the elites kind of took on this higher calling to reform themselves, essentially. Is that what needs to happen again? Does there need to be this kind of cultural, socio-cultural shift within elite mindsets to embrace political reform? It would, would, is that like what you would isolate as the, the way forward to prevent civil war? Essentially, yes. Uh, the United States actually, uh, history in the United States is um, 
uh, great because we have both a peer, uh, an example of collapse or breakdown, which is the civil war of 1860s, and uh, the revolutionary situation of 1920s, which was truly, uh, the country was truly on the brink. People then uh, really felt that, that way. It did not materialize, no revolution materialized, but it didn't materialize because of the pro-social actions taken by certain segments of the elites. So now this is, uh, we have to repeat essentially uh, the progressive era New Deal period. Remember, it took 30 years actually to turn around uh, that uh, situation. And so as soon as we get started, uh, the sooner we get started, the sooner we can actually, uh, you know, ensure that we avoid the worst. All right. Of course, now at this point, uh, there is very little awareness amongst our political elites uh, of this. So we are in a typical situation when the enemy is the other party. All right. So, I, so this party could be Optimates versus uh, Popularis in uh, ancient <laughs> Rome, uh, you know, but now it's Democrats versus Republicans um, and uh, or it could be and for the con- for context, the Optimates and uh, Popularis were slaughtering each other in the streets. They were not exactly. just limited to the ballots. Exactly, exactly. Yes, or Huguenots and uh, Catholics, they were also slaughtering each other in the streets. So as one contemporary observer, the corpses were lying like pigs in mud in Paris in the 1415. So St. Bartholomew uh, Massacre. Yeah. So, okay. So for context... Your, um, like I said, we're, we're not going to talk about, uh, we don't want to make it too uh, much of a normative prediction, but your one path that you, you see us on is the path towards social discord. When you were talking about rupture in 2024, you're imagining this is going to be, this is going to see all these forces coming to a fore and potentially resulting in violence. We can already imagine some of those scenarios playing out it's interesting when you think about those disparate elements of immiseration, of elite overproduction and loss of faith, because they don't see they don't seem in and of themselves as something that would lead to violence. Um, maybe immiseration, if you is what people mostly associate of the reason people riot, but you point out that in the nexus of those um, trends. You, you know, without even having to explain teleologically why this is happening, you can see historically that it does. When you have these trends over supercharged, you get riots, you get violence, and you get um, societies collapsing on themselves. So you don't even need to offer the story, the version of the, that journalists and historians, or I should say pop historians like to deal with of here is the story of why psychologically we're getting to this point, but rather say, this is what happens. This is like, like when you study biology, you don't need to give reasons um, to, to why, to why m- molecules behave the way they do um, or mm-hmm. chemistry. Um, you're just saying, the, this is a trend, this is, has been observed, you should be aware of that. But because the, your explanation is so, let's call it scientific, um, or, 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 or plays in the field of science, it's almost, I, 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 can't, I don't know how to sell that to people to take seriously. And that's a two-level problem. It's selling it to the public to um, to 
kind of look at it in a way that will adjust their own behavior and their own choices in terms of who they vote, what they, how they behave, how they treat other people and, and how they pressure politicians to behave accordingly. But also politicians who might actually be aware of what you're saying, because I think some of these conversations are, are pretty much out there, but have no incentive to change their behavior to tamper things down. How do you solve these problems? And let's start with politicians. How do you, or, or like let the ruling class, how do you, how do we incentivize the ruling class to pull us from the brink? But first of all, let me say that I disagree with you. I think that uh, explaining the mechanisms is very, very important if we want this uh, theory to be uh, accepted by you know mm. people. Because after all, we are not molecules. So we understand, we can understand why, uh, you know, Robespierre, you know, Lenin, uh, Castro acted the way they did. They were not personally immiserated. They were swimming in the sea of immiseration, uh, mm. but they themselves were pretty well off. All right. They were driven by other motives. Right. And so we want to understand that. In fact, in my forthcoming book, I have added uh, some vignettes where I have uh, imaginary characters illustrating the kind of psychology, psychological choices that, uh, that happen to people coming from various strata of the society. So, and also remember that I am a scientist. My uh, main, main job is understanding. And uh, this is, the prediction is involved because we want to know which theories give us best understanding, but uh, that, that's subordinate. Prediction is subordinate. I'm not a politician. I'm not a leader of a social movement. So I see my job is to make it clear to other politicians and uh, social uh, movement leaders what, are, what the nature of the problem is. All right. And then um, provide some tools about uh, figuring out how to do it uh, what, how to solve, uh, this, uh, problem. All right. So, right, no, and this is what, this is where I'm coming from. I'm asking as somebody who, who, who is looking at the different paths and the different futures, but also is aware of how these conversations translate. I'm not saying that you should change your language, but I'm saying how somebody like me who is interested in, you know, averting, certain types of disasters. I'd rather not see um, people being slaughtered like pigs in the streets um, or even think like several degrees short of that. I'd rather not see um, in, in our lifetime. How, like where I'm stuck on, on, on my personal um, vendetta is how do we get people, how do we get politicians? How do we, how do we change incentives, structural incentives to draw more attention and, and more caution to these um, trends. And yeah. I don't know if that's something that's even, even within your um, uh, bailiwick to think about. Yeah, so my time is running out, all right? But uh, so uh, I'm happy to, to join you guys maybe um, in uh, half a year time or something like May, or next May or something like that. We can continue this conversation, which also I, would I be... Which was also be good because my book is supposed to come out in June. We would okay. absolutely love that. So, right. um, so let me just say something very uh, quick. Yes. So the very first thing to do is instead of blaming other people, so deplorables mm. or the uh, you know the leftist elites or things like that, uh, we have to understand that it's not these results. The uh, the age of discord we are in, it was not designed by some evil individuals. It has uh, come about as a result of impersonal social forces acting on individuals, 
All right. So that's really the very first realization. The very first um, uh, thing that we need to do is shift, shift the explanatory framework, so to speak, uh, if I may use scientists, uh, to uh, understanding the, um, the, the structural forces that are pushing us to the brink. P- Peter, this was great. And I, I really hope that you will join us around May because there's so much more I'd love to talk to you about. And I, we really appreciate this. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. We are at uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our newsletter and share us with your friends and enemies. Till next time, stay sane.